I like the idea of how about the unspoken narrative? How about the unpopular narrative? I'm sure that you've read some of John Ioannidis' stuff out of Stanford. I have. Yeah, he was one of the first people I started paying attention to back in early March, I think, is when I first started paying attention to, to some of the stuff he was putting out. Yeah, there was a great article about him. It was in The uh, Spectator. Did you see that one where they just, he's been ridiculed? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, anybody who's spoken out with um, a different viewpoint on this, it doesn't matter what their credentials are, has been ridiculed, which I found really interesting because I actually created a meme about it that was like, oh, it has to be a doctor, but not that doctor. It has to be an epidemiologist, but not that epidemiologist. I'm going to send you an article. I just, I just sent it right now. And this was written at uh, a conservative uh, Minnesota news outlet called Alpha News. But the guy who wrote it is a friend of mine, and he was a supporter of mine, and I know him personally, and I think he's, I think highly of him. But anyway, he writes this article to a lot of what you're talking about. And in the article, the way he put it on together on the internet was you can click in so many places, and it'll bring you to another article that supports what he's saying. And it's just really, if you will, almost a cornucopia of good articles that will reinforce what you're trying to say. Oh, that's great. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd. And today we are going to talk coronavirus. We're going to talk about COVID-19. We're going to go a little into, now that we're a couple months down the line, we're going to go a little more into some of the new discussions, some of the new debates on this. And we're not going to just be talking with myself here. We're going to be talking about somebody who knows their stuff. And we're welcoming back, or I'm welcoming back, Dr. Scott Jensen, Senator Scott Jensen, who we had on the Vaccine Conversation podcast. And we're going to continue talking with him. He was great. We had so many responses that were so positive to that. So I love specifically the fact that he spoke out with what we call an unpopular opinion. And that's actually what I wanted to title this podcast. But there were like 10 people that already had that title. So I had to go in a different direction. But essentially, that's what I do. And those are the kind of conversations I want to bring to the table. So welcome to the show, Dr. Scott Jensen. Thank you very much, Melissa. It's good to be with you. So before we go into the questions, what do you think about that idea, this, this idea of an unpopular opinion? Would you consider yourself someone who has unpopular opinions? Or is this kind of a new thing for you? That's a great question. I've always sort of thought that my experience as a physician in the trenches taking care of primary care patients every day, combined with the fact that I've been teaching at the University of Minnesota Medical School for 30 plus years, would basically put me in a place where I was pretty much mainstream. I've always been very much a champion for patients to get to make their own choices. So when it came to vaccines, I always made sure that patients felt free to make the decision that they thought was best for them or for their family. But I never was really, if you will, cast as an outlier. But over the last gee, three months now, it seems like since I came out and spoke against some of what the CDC had to say about death certificates, I've slowly been pushed into a corner. And I try desperately to say, hey, this isn't this isn't fair. I'm I'm simply expressing my skepticism and doing my best to try to connect the dots because really I think that's what I bring to the table. In the Senate, I see a lot of policy questions come across my desk. In my medical office, I take care of a lot of everyday patients, I take care of pediatrics, I've delivered 500 babies. And then teaching at the medical school, I continue to get exposure to them if you will, those young residents and med students who ask hard questions because they don't necessarily accept things just because it's traditionally the way we do things. 
So it's been a surprise to me to see myself ostracized and at times demonized on social media. You know, it's funny too, like I consider myself a rule follower and I've always kind of been that way. I was never the rebel. I was never the person that had to have the different viewpoint or had to go against the grain. Uh, I always consider myself somebody who is, again, very mainstream. I'm very logical, rational, data-based. But ever since six years ago when I got into the vaccine debate, because I was speaking out against you know, legislation that mandated, I'm taking away exemptions, then of course, you become the one that's attacked. And every mainstream media article that talks about, quote, anti-vaxxers and and how horrible they are and how selfish they are, and you get totally outcasted. You get uh, your friends, the people that I knew at that time stopped speaking with me. I mean, I, you really became out there on your own. And it was a really hard thing for me at first. The longer I did it, of course, the more comfortable I kind of got with it. So when COVID came around and right away, my red flags were going up, there was definitely something about what the information was being presented that did not sit right with me because I was already researching data from other countries. So I was already looking into the Asian countries and what their statistics were in the end of January. So by early March, when we're getting this narrative here, I'm going, wait a second. Everybody said, oh, it's going to be like Italy. It's going to be like New York City's going to, that's going to happen everywhere. You know, and I'm thinking, but, but that's not the case in all these other places. And I don't know how a virus can behave so differently in one area, not the other. And so when I first started speaking out against COVID on the narrative, the same thing. I mean, I had people who followed me in the vaccine debate who said, Melissa, you know what? I really like what you do with your vaccine research, but I think you're wrong on this and you're being really irresponsible. And it was hard for me at first because I'm going, God, am I looking at this wrong? Am I, you know, I question myself because I'm not really that comfortable with criticism when I feel like I'm doing the research, which is probably how you felt. You're looking at a medical opinion going, I'm not an outlier. This is data. That's exactly right. And I share your experience. And actually, it really hits close to home. I mean, it's it's family members. It's, it's close friends. And we've had several issues emerge that seem to be lightning rods. I mean, I don't know if we're going to talk about masks today at all. You know, for a while, the whole issue of fomite spread, where could a viral particle exist on a countertop or a doorknob? or a cereal box for any length of time. And for you know, 30 plus years, we've identified that viral particles being the parasites that they are, they do not survive sitting on a Cheerios box or sitting on a countertop for very long at all. There was some decent research done by Dr. Streak, I think his name was out of Germany, who actually said perhaps the only way that you could transmit COVID-19 would be if someone sneezed on their hand that had COVID-19, sneezed on their hand, opened the door, and immediately after they opened the door, someone else came to open the door and grabbed the door handle and then immediately touched their nose, their eyes, or their mouth. Maybe in that situation, he said, but otherwise, he said, this isn't happening. So we've had these moving debates where, you know, we talked about masks and we talked about fomite spread and we're talking about lockdowns. And the people in the mainstream are doing everything they can to minimize the voice of the skeptic. And I was always taught by my dad, and dad was a lawyer and a judge, and he was in the legislature, but he always taught us as kids that we should be able to argue both sides of an issue. And if we can't, then we don't know enough about the issue. And I think I could do that. I think I could go out there and put together a decent argument defending everything our Democratic governor, Governor Walls in Minnesota, has done. 
And I think I can do it the other way too and put out an argument that says, no, we've made some real substantial miscues and we shouldn't do it again. But when I get to that point where I can argue both sides, then I get to use my own brain. And I have found that people are so appreciative of me coming out saying, listen, I'm not saying I'm a rocket scientist. I'm a bright enough guy, but I'm in a position where I can help connect the dots, translate some of the data, and give you both some time-tested advice, but also give you some, some rationale that you can doubt people. You don't have to buy what they're selling. Well, and your experience that you offer, too, obviously, you're in medicine. So I think it's just ironic that another doctor can come out and say, hey, this is a really serious virus. Everybody needs to wear masks. People are going to die. And then that's okay. But if you get the doctor who says, you know what? Actually, the mortality rate is very low. Masks don't prevent transmission. And there probably aren't going to be a ton of people dying the way we thought. Then that person all of a sudden is either a quack or you can't take them seriously or they get put into a category of, COVID deniers, you know, whatever these categories that they make for people. It's just, but your dad's advice is, um, is pretty good. I like that idea. I was in a debate class in eighth grade. I, I really enjoyed it because you do have to learn enough about both sides. And maybe that's part of why um, I kind of do what I do and why people enjoy what I present because I try to look at both sides of it before I present my opinion. And I've already thought of the counters before I even present my opinion in the first place. So that when somebody counters me, I'm already ready for that counter because I've already had that debate within my own head. And that's important because that's part of critical thinking, which is not what we're really seeing. We're seeing a lot of groupthink. That's exactly right. And actually, I was, you know, I looked up groupthink and I think of, in my lifetime, I think of a couple of really sharp, crisp examples. One was the, uh, the challenger that exploded. And if you go back and look at the decision made within the preceding 48 hours about whether or not it was good for launch, considering the weather conditions and whether or not the O-ring could handle that kind of a cold temperature. And they've reenacted that whole groupthink process. And then the other one would certainly be Jimmy Jones in Guyana, I think in 1978, where he was able to get this almost a thousand people to drink Kool-Aid, both physically and metaphorically. And that kind of groupthink is is dangerous. And we're asked to, you know, you, we could say groupthink, or we can say echo chamber, or we can say someone gets in a silo. And I think a lot of our leaders, I think a lot of our governors have done that. They've, they've locked into a, a couple of resources and they're off and running. And I think that they should be at least every other week calling in people who disagree with them and saying, okay, I want you to rip and tear into what we're doing and telling us why it's not good. And in that way, really flush this out. I mean, we're going to have a huge uh, decision to be made in, in the next five weeks as to whether or not school-aged children will be able to return to school in September. And we need to have that skeptical viewpoint playing a role in this. Dr. John Ioannidis out of Stanford has been incredibly highly regarded through the years. I think in 2010, Atlanta came out and gave him this glowing report. And he's been under the gun. And he's, he's an unusual researcher in that he's a meta-researcher. He really tries to dig into a lot of the research that's been done out there and analyze it to see if it really tests uh, the way it should, if it really passes muster. And he's been doing this for years. And his, his efforts have always been appreciated. But now, all of a sudden, because he dares, he dares to talk about a narrative that isn't the mainstream narrative, 
he's being ridiculed. He's being ridiculed by professors from Rutgers, people that would have, you know, literally almost genuflected before him five years ago. They're going after him maniacally. Well, it's funny, too, because as a smart gentleman that he is, you know he knows what he's in for when he posts this stuff. So you know he's posting it because he truly believes in it and because he truly has done that kind of thorough research. So he's not going to put something out like this unless he really has dotted the I's and crossed the T's, in which case you could almost pay more attention to somebody like that because they know what they're in for when you put that you know, contradictory opinion out uh, into the public, into the, the mainstream media, he knows. And so you know he had to do his due diligence before he put that out there, which to me speaks even more highly of him. That's a great point. I might take issue with your comment there. I might say for him, I don't know him, so I can't say it, but, but for him or for me, I don't know that I realized what I was getting myself in for. And maybe he did or didn't. But regardless, the onslaught occurred. And at that point in time, if he chose to not clam up and just go away, then just exactly what you're saying, Melissa, kudos to him. He said, I said what I had to say. It was intellectually sound. It was scientifically based. And if you want to be mean-spirited, unfair, and do these kinds of things, you go for it. But you are not going to silence my voice. That's, if you will, a certain heroism. And I, and I take my hat off to him. Because I don't know if he knew at the front end, because he was this acclaimed ivory tower at some level physician researcher. But boy, he got creamed and he refused to knuckle. And for me, that speaks volumes. I agree. I I have a lot of respect for people that don't back down. They don't back down. I mean, again, you should make sure that your argument is sound, like you said, intellectually sound before you put it out there. That's the key. So if you've done that and you put it out there, why would you backtrack? Why would you be silenced at that point? Because everybody's so afraid of that negative response, the negative reviews, the criticism. I mean, it doesn't feel good to be on the receiving end of that. And I've already been there on a lesser level, obviously. Um, But I've been there and it's very isolating and it makes you doubt yourself. And and it, you know, for many, it can almost put you into a depression because it's, it's really hard to not be accepted. We're social creatures. We want to be accepted, especially if we feel like we have this intellectually sound argument and we're using rationale. It doesn't make logical sense why somebody could disagree so much and turn into this different thing. But, you know, you mentioned um, regarding governors, just one quick point that I'm, I'm kind of interested in. How come governors get to just quote science by saying the word science without actually showing science when they're making up these policy decisions? It's because nobody is as bad as politicians in terms of bastardizing the English language. I mean, politicians do it all the time. If you asked most governors, what is science? I don't think they could give you even a reasonable definition. If you ask someone who spent their life in science, they would say, I think something like this. Science is the process of observing and then measuring and then creating a hypothesis based on your observations and your measurements. And once you create that hypothesis, you create or devise some sort of an experiment to see if your hypothesis is correct. I mean, that's what Newton did with the apple falling, right? It fell and it fell. He watched it. He measured it, created an hypothesis. And you know, also, there must be some sort of gravitational force here. I mean, that's what science is. And I think that people think that epidemiology is science. Epidemiology is 
far more akin to accounting or analytics or statistics. It has very little to do with science. It has everything to do with looking at data and trying to glean useful information uh, that might help us respond differently than we might otherwise if we didn't have that analysis. But epidemiology is not science. Hmm. Yeah, well, I see like Governor Newsom, where we are in California, Governor Newsom often says, science has told us that masks are going to prevent the spread. You know, science has told us lockdown is necessary. Science has told us you're not allowed to leave your house. Whatever the thing is, he just says the word science. He never, ever, not one time, has said, here's the science me and my team are referring to. Here's the science I've been advised about. He just says the word like it's a catch-all for some kind of foundation for policy. Yeah, if I could speak to that, I just, uh, because I know we've got a lot of topics to talk about, but in terms of masks, if you look at the physical properties of N95 masks, surgical masks, and cotton masks, it's fairly easy to demonstrate that a mask is not going to prevent the transmission of COVID-19 particles, which are approximately 0.1 micron in size when the surgical and cotton masks have pore sizes between 15 and 50 microns. And if you triple ply them, you can bring that 15 microns down to an effective five micron pore size, but the COVID-19 particle is 0.1 or 1 50th of that. So that COVID-19 particle being filtered by a surgical mask is akin to looking at a chain link fence with the wire strands being two inches apart, which is 51 millimeters, and then stacking up 51 gnats, which are approximately one millimeter from nose to tail, a gnat is. So you'd have to, 51 gnats lined up in a row can traverse from one strand in a chain link fence to another. So what you're really saying then, when you say, okay, we expect a five micron pore to filter out a 0.1 micron sized COVID-19 particle is the same as saying we're not happy with the fact that our picnic area in our backyard has too many gnats. So to get rid of the gnats, we're going to put up a chain link fence. Now, who would do that? I mean, right. And there's been consistent science that has actually shown, you know, based on influenza studies and things, also a virus particle, that this has not ever been proven. There's no real evidence that the mask wearing uh, is going to prevent transmission. And then on top of that, you've got a country like China who was already wearing masks before, before the outbreak, and it still happened. And the other thing that we found is, okay, so say a mask was able to block 40% of the viral particles. So what we don't know in terms of the science, and we have to ask ourselves the question is, what role does viral load play? Because the amount of virus that you get exposed to matters. The COVID-19 is not like a game of tag where if a COVID-19 particle touches you, you're it. The viral load matters. If you've got a person who is sick with COVID-19 on day three versus day nine, by day nine, if they cough or sneeze, they're going to be expectorating less COVID-19 particles. They will be, if you will, less problematic in terms of spreading the disease. There are number are not, should be lower. These things matter, but this is where we are in uncharted territory. So for people to speak like they're absolutely certain is just hogwash. And we have to recognize that there is this is uncharted water. We need to press the chill button and say, oh, you know what, we're learning. We've learned over the last two months that viral virulence is not much of a deal if it's 
on a cardboard box or on a piece of newspaper. We learn that. We still don't know about the masks. It's possible that we'll come out and say that the N95 mask really does everything we hoped it does. But most of the data shows that even though an N95 mask is definitely helpful, it's not foolproof. So I think that we need to stop this frenzied screaming and noise that says that we know what to do when we don't know what to do. We need to all be respectful of one another and say, hey, you know what? This We've had this for five months going on. We're learning a lot. And right now what we're learning is lockdowns may not be anywhere near what we thought they were. Fact of the matter is they may be counterproductive in so many ways that we should not do another lockdown because of what we've learned. This idea there's been talk there might be a second lockdown. Is that something you think is going to happen? And you just mentioned you don't think it would be well-advised. Um, why not? I think it would be ill-advised because I think that lockdowns haven't been proven to be effective. And I think that the unintended consequences of a lockdown are very difficult to measure, but they're very real. The Washington Post came out last week with an article where the the head of the National Cancer Institute said that just looking at breast and colon cancer over the next 10 years, we'll probably have 10,000 deaths that didn't need to happen uh, because of the lockdowns. And we're seeing increase in domestic abuse, increase in suicides, increase in child abuse. These things might not be as easily measured, but they're, they're just as real. And if we look at all-cause mortality and we look at week 14 this year to week 14 last year and over the last five years, Yes, we see in New York City that they had a six-week stretch of time where all-cause mortality this year is clearly up. But in lots of other places, including Minnesota, you can't really tell the difference uh, in terms of this year versus last year. I think what we've learned is in terms of affecting school-aged children, COVID-19 is actually less problematic than typical flu season. If you look at the middle population from 20 to 50, with people not having underlying medical problems is probably similar to a typical flu season, maybe a little bit more intense, but it's where you start dealing with people over the age of 60, underlying medical problems, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, that's where clearly this is an issue. So that data should be fairly compelling for us that what we wanna do is we want to protect the vulnerable. If that means voluntary quarantining, making certain that we're reaching out to do everything we can to support that vulnerable population, that's what we should be doing. We're making a lot of hullabaloo right now about increasing the number of cases. That was never a problem. We knew that we need to get to a certain percentage of the population having a certain immunoprotection, or this would go on for a long, long time. And typically what happens is either through getting the disease or a vaccine, you build a herd immunity. But one thing that oftentimes goes unexamined is something that's very important, and I've been talking about this for what, three, four weeks, is the whole idea of disease resistance, or if you will, innate immunity that would prevent you from getting the COVID-19 disease, even if you wanted to. And it isn't necessarily reliant on having IgG and IgM antibodies. You can have an innate immunity because of your T lymphocytes, and that won't show up in any of our measurements. If you look at the time of Jesus, and you look at leprosy, more than 90% of the population had an immunity to leprosy. They couldn't get leprosy if they wanted it. Let's take the Theodore Roosevelt aircraft carrier situation. 
we had 5,000 soldiers living in close quarters, sleeping in triple bunks, living next to each other, breathing the same air, eating the same mess halls, day after day, week after week. 800 of them got the disease. More than half of those didn't even know they had it. But regardless, we had another 4,000 that didn't get the disease, and yet they were in the same set of circumstances. So this is like this is like an underlying genetic component that nobody's really talking about, is that there are certain things that people get, certain things that they don't, regardless of exposure. Exactly. If you look at Black people, you see a DNA that's very susceptible to sickle cell disease. If you look at Asian people, you see a tremendous incidence of gastric cancers that you don't see in Caucasians. We see a tremendous resistance on the part of Black people in terms of melanomas. So we know these things exist, but we don't know how to get our arms around these things. But ultimately, if we are going to get some sort of a population immunity, a herd immunity, it's going to be through the fact that we'll have 20 to 30% of people potentially, maybe even more, that couldn't get the disease if they put it on their cereal in the morning. And then we'll have another group, a big group, that got the disease. If you look at Sweden, they think that their immunity that way is up to 25% already. And then you have the potential for a vaccine. But even a vaccine is by no means a slam dunk because to give a vaccine out of the blocks to all people from zero to 100 is extremely unusual. Typically, that's not what we do. So who is the vaccine going to work for? Well, also, did you see Dr. Fauci's did you see Dr. Fauci's comments, too, regarding the vaccine? Uh, he echoed basically what Bill Gates said about a month ago on his personal blog, which basically said that they are uh, assuming the immunity, the protection that is going to be there, will last maybe about three months. Yeah, and I don't think they have any basis for that. I mean, we know that with the COVID, the coronavirus one, the, the SARS virus in uh, 2002, we had clear examples where people had those antibodies lasting two, three years, and in some situations, five to 10 years. We know that. So they can speculate all they want. But as far as I'm concerned, that's the fear mongering that's been, for me, immensely frustrating. I feel like I don't know Bill Gates. I know the guy's got a lot of money. But it seems to me he pushes everything towards vaccines. It seems to me that he doesn't want this thing to go away. This is the heyday. So, you know, he'll tell you, you can't have a vaccine created in less than 12 to 18 months. And then a month later, he'll tell us, well, you know, we've got uh, human trials starting in September. I mean, this is the noise that w we all have to sort of sift through ourselves. And I'm not telling people, accept my word for it. I'm just telling people, feel comfortable being skeptical. Don't buy all the narratives you're hearing. And remember, the media and a lot of the bureaucrats this is exactly what they want. I mean, it certainly feels like there's a lot of conflicting information and it's made to shape American beliefs about something, which is what really concerns me and why I feel like this is politicized, because I can tell that the media is trying to shape your belief. They want you to feel a certain way about coronavirus. They want you to feel a certain way about people who don't wear masks. They want you to feel a certain way about those who are protesting the reopen rallies. Um, it's it's part of the way that they present the issue. And I found it really interesting how different COVID was presented depending on what news network you watched. On one network, everybody's going to die. And so you better get prepared for it. On another network, this is basically like a strong flu season. We need to get our economies, you know, up and running again. And it's the same virus. I mean, I find that just so fascinating how they can present, this is a news, you know, these are supposed to be news organizations presenting news to the public. 
but they're presenting it in a way that is trying to shape the way you feel about it. And we do really see that, that push for fear. And if the fear starts to subside, it's almost like you see a new wave of it, right? A new wave of propaganda that comes out, a new wave of uh, PR that comes out like, you're not afraid enough about this. How about this article? Let's put this on the news and get this coverage. Now you're going to be scared. Oh, no, second wave. Speaking of which, that's the new topic right now. There's a second wave coming. What are your thoughts on a second wave? Well, I traditionally with these kinds of things, and we've had epidemics. I mean, I think in the Congo, they have, they're having their 11th outbreak of Ebola virus in the last 40 years. We get an outbreak every year of flu. And then some years it qualifies and it's an epidemic. Other years it qualifies as a pandemic. But typically there'll be another wave. And that's not uncommon. And typically the, the second wave is smaller than the first. I think that the narrative today that, oh, no, we're seeing an increasing number of cases, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I think you can look at some of the stuff Dr. Mike Osterholm has said, some of the stuff Dr. John Ioannidis has said. This is actually good news. I mean, this tells us that we're getting more and more herd immunity. The issue is, if you go back to March, the issue was two goalposts. One is depress the peak and push it downstream so that the second goalpost, we don't exceed our hospital and healthcare capacity, meaning that we have to have adequate number of ventilators, adequate amount of personal protective equipment, ICU beds, hospital beds, and all that. And we have taken care of that business. So all of a sudden, not exceeding hospital and healthcare capacity and depressing the peak is not enough. Now it's as if they want to extinguish the disease. That makes no sense. What we want is we want an increasing number of cases, and we don't want any deaths. And we're seeing in Minnesota, we're seeing, I think, we have the lowest number of COVID-19 deaths in two months. And yet we're still getting a narrative in our media in Minnesota that the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the whole chicken little thing. And they're not going to relent. I, I saw an article the other day where they talked about the only thing that pushed COVID-19 off the front page of the papers was the racial injustice. And that, if you will, escalated. It pushed COVID-19 down for about 10 days. It's back up. And the riots and the demonstrations and the racial injustice has been pushed down. The media is messing with us. Okay, we're going to stop there for now. And we are going to continue this conversation in a second episode with Dr. Scott Jensen. So you don't want to miss it. Make sure you tune in on What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd. Thanks for listening.